This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Yes, thank you everybody for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fancy Hockey Podcast, the best Fantasy Hockey Podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who at one point owned Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrowski. With me, as always, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. How nice to be back yet again for one of the most important episodes of the summer series. And you might think that means we're talking about a lot of players. No, no players, no fantasy player analysis or projections on this episode of the show You've been warned, but something much more exciting is coming, or at least as exciting. Yeah, well, a staple of the summer series. We like to cover some general topics for new people joining the podcast or new people even getting into fantasy hockey. Here's a little 101 for how to design the perfect fantasy league. Brian and I have actually been running our own fantasy league for Keeping Carlson for the past two years, the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. So we've learned a lot of lessons about all the different decisions we had to make, you know, whether to do points versus head-to-head or like how many ad drops to allow, all this stuff, all these important decisions you have to make when designing your pool. We're going to go through them all in the context of what we've been doing for the cacuffle all this time. And by the end, we're going to hopefully land on what we think is the perfect set of settings. So of course, probably for most of these things, we're just going to be telling you the truth trade-off if you want a league more like this you pick this if you want a league more like that go with that it's gonna be a lot of fun brian i'm excited before we get into it of course let's mention that we are presented by the best fantasy hockey website out there dauberhockey.com over the past few episodes and there's been all the movement in the nhl we've been referencing it a lot because they had analyses for every free agent signing and every trade they're always up to date on all the fantasy hockey news now actually we're at the point where we're approaching the season, right? Drafts are, what, a couple months away for most leagues? So the world-famous Dauber Hockey Guide is going to be coming out soon. You could already go in and pre-order your guide, so you'll be ready to download it in every update as it comes. The Prospects Guide is already out. There's so much there. It's a fantastic website. They're even still churning out content now, even though there's nothing happening in the NHL. That's how good of a site it is. So you definitely have to check it out, DauberHockey.com. Yeah, if you are not like the guy or girl who's on Twitter and focusing on like each little beat writer nugget and like staring at it until it takes on some semblance of meaning. That is, that is what Dauber hockey is there for. That sort of stuff ends up in the ramblings, just wild blue skying sometimes if there's nothing hard to go on. But hey, that's, that's what we live for. That's why we play fantasy hockey. We don't speculate a whole lot, but sometimes that's all there is to do for the next couple of weeks. But like you've already said, Elon, we have 
some really fun and important things to talk about in, in launching our fantasy league. Do you want to, how would you introduce the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League if you had 15 seconds or less to explain just how it's the best fantasy league in the world? Well, you'll hear about it all throughout this episode because we'll try to frame all of our discussion. <laughs> 15 seconds. Okay, starting now, we've accumulated the best, most knowledgeable people out there in terms of fancy hockey, and you get to join this league and play against the best of the best. You're not going to find better competition than in a league with the other patrons of Keeping Carlson, and that's why the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League is the best league out there. But Brian, this is not an infomercial. We want to just teach oh. people about how to design a hockey league. Yeah, yeah, no, we well, we want to do that, but we also like... Okay, fine. I I just want to brag a little bit. Like this is such an amazing, and it's also not just to play against like the best. If you if you don't think you're quite the best, like there's levels. Like you'll you'll get leveled against the person. I want to turn it into an infomercial. I guess I won't. But also, um, like the conversations we're about to have, Elon, about setting up your own league. We've thought about for the cup full, and we've sort of chosen the best mix of fun and competitiveness to roll into the cupful and like painstakingly like all the the degrees of thoughts and counter thoughts you'll hear on this show have gone into creating it so uh i don't know you're right i i am shilling right now okay well how about this brian we'll shill at the end we're gonna have a big announcement at the end of the episode and that will be shill time but yeah we've put a lot of thought like you said into each of these decisions and we've had a lot of arguments and so i'm thinking brian let's bring the arguments to our listeners let's have little debates for each topic i know there's a lot of things that you and i still don't 100 percent agree on and that's what will be fun to hammer out here so let's get started so the first thing or whatever i don't know one of the things you have to decide when designing your league is the scoring system right so we know the basics all the people are going to have a bunch of players and at the end of the season we're going to decide which person won the league but there's so many different ways to decide who won that league one big thing you have to decide at the beginning is, is your league going to be head-to-head, where every week you have a matchup against other people in the league, and then you're accumulating wins in your weekly matchups to decide who ranks the highest? Or are you just going to count all of the goals and assists and everything all throughout the season, just at the end of the season, see who had the most goals, who had the most assists? There's a style called Roto, where for each category that you're counting, you just rank everyone in that category. And then, you know, if there's 12 people in the league... Then whoever comes first in goals gets 12 points, second in goals gets 11 points, then you do that for each category and you add up the points that way. Or you could do straight up points, just count everyone's goals and assists or something. So those are the two major pool types I could think of. Head-to-head, weekly matchups, or season-long counting, mainly Roto. Why don't we start the debate, Brian? What's your preference? Well, what do I prefer? Uh, You know, I I have a a predisposition towards head-to-head, but I'm going to be charitable here. I'm going to be the nice guy and be the mean guy. Uh, by saying, I think Roto is better. Rotisserie leagues, I mean, they certainly do have their merits over a head-to-head. It's actually how I broke into fantasy hockey, playing rotisserie, but it's also a way that I almost became disinterested. But first, some of the the pluses are that you are awarded based on your teams playing all year long. Like rotisserie, you start the year, you build your team, and I mean, in head-to-head, it's the same thing. You have the same roster, but everything resets to zero after each week, essentially. You have the same players, but, you know, no matter if you had 20 goals in a week or five goals in a week, you're in the same place the next week. Of course, you have the standings points that you accumulated uh, because you won or lost that category with those goals. However, in rotisserie, you carry those over the entire season. So you are going based on how much your team did cumulatively for the whole season and matching up in each category against everyone else in your league. So on one hand, uh, that sounds 
pretty harrowing, especially if you're new to the format. I remember I once played fantasy baseball uh, for a few years, and I did a rotisserie league the first year, and I crashed out so quickly because I barely knew what I was doing. I was an Expos fan after they had just moved, and I tried to pick like only former Expos players because that's all I knew, and I thought it would be fun. It didn't go very well for me, and there, it didn't feel like I could get back into it. So Roto can be something that if there's a wide gap in abilities from from best to worst, uh, you can find yourself on the wrong end of that really quickly and feel like you can't dig yourself out. However, again, it's rewarding merit, uh, really directly. It's like, hey, your team was the best at this all year long. It's like your team won the most games or had the most goals for in the NHL. Uh, that means that you deserve credit for it. And I also like the degrees of credit. It's not just like one win or one loss. You have a ranking. So like you said, if there are 12 people in your league and you are tops in half the categories and bottom in the rest, that means, you know, you're going to be a middling team on the whole. Rotisserie means you have to be pretty consistent across the board. If you tank any categories, good luck. You're going to have a really hard time placing in the top three of your league. Yeah, Brian, I get what you're saying with rotisserie or just season long in general. Yeah, it's maybe more fair. You're counting all the goals. It's not like you just had bad luck one week where you had the second most goals in the league and your opponent happened to have the most goals that week. And so you lose, even though actually you accumulated so many goals that just are totally useless to you. I get that. But the thing is, head to head is just so much more fun like because you're pointing out how you could just be losing partway through. You know, you fall back in a category. It's too late. You're not going to be able to catch up. And then you're kind of done with head to head. At least you get the fun of every week. You have a new matchup. You could have different incentives. Like maybe even if you're far down in the standings, you may be like, I want to beat my friend this week. So that makes it a lot of fun. And also, like you say, in head-to-head, you get to retool your team a little bit. And if you see you've been losing in blocks every week, you still have a chance to go to free agency, pick up some blocks, guys, and try to win blocks some weeks and help yourself. As opposed to in Roto, if you're down in blocks, you might as well forget about it and drop all your blocks, guys, because there's no point you're going to lose anyway. But I get what you're saying. Maybe instead of coming in last place, you might come in fifth last place, and that can make a difference. Anyways, I think head-to-head's a lot of fun. We did decide to go with head-to-head in the Cacupful, just so everyone could have a chance to go all the way through. Plus, also the fun thing about head-to-head is you get to have a playoffs, which is so fun. So you have your regular season, your fantasy regular season, which ends a few weeks before the actual regular season ends, and then you take your standings, and then you have head-to-head matchups for the playoffs to determine the ultimate champion. So you have excitement all the way to the end. With Roto, you might get to the end, and there's a runaway winner that you knew about since February, so it really just fizzles out, and a lot of people just lose interest, as opposed to with head-to-head. You have some excitement all the way to the end. Yeah, Roto, by the way, sounds like some sort of medical condition when I think if you say rotisserie, it just sounds delicious, like chicken. Uh, <laughs> but so I like I yeah. So I think I'm with you in thinking that head to head is more fun. Rotisserie is like the more intense competitive thing. The one thing that I I like a little more about head to head that I'll throw your way because I'm not sure you mentioned it is that there's like more ways to create rivalries. Like you will be head to it, like it, it makes greater chirping opportunities because you are going to have skin in the game against each individual person and rather than just, you know, the two or three who are around you in the rotisserie rankings over the course of the season. So for that, for offering some rich opportunity to get under people's skin and to whatever, mock or make jokes about or raise the stakes somehow, uh, head-to-head has a definite advantage there. 
Yeah, I guess a lot of our debates are going to come down to this trade-off of sort of fun and maybe also gameplay, like adding more gameplay mechanics versus just rewarding the best team, rewarding the smartest player. I think we both agree that Roto does reward the best team, maybe not the best players. There's a lot of head-to-head mechanics that you have to be good at in order to be good at head-to-head. But at least, yeah, the strongest team is going to be the team that wins in Rotisserie, maybe not so much in head-to-head. You could just, like I said, get lucky and win a couple of close matchups and... And then whenever you have weeks where you don't score a lot, you know, you might even still be able to win matchups just by getting lucky and playing against someone who scored even fewer goals or who had fewer assists. So, yeah, but I think head-to-head's more fun. That's why we decided to go with it in the Cupful. Brian, one decision we were thinking about for this season was every season of the Cupful so far, we've been doing one-week matchups. You brought up the idea that maybe you wanted to change to two-week matchups. Why did you want to make that change? That was a change that was hoping to take some of the randomness and unpredictability out that can happen over one week's time. Uh, You know, it's just starting with schedules for each team. You know, some weeks a team might play anywhere between two uh, on the low extreme and five on the higher extreme number of games over two weeks. I feel like you're more likely to have a similar amount of men games played, assuming, of course, everyone has a, a mostly static roster. But the other argument for doing it is there are stats like goals and save percentage that can really fluctuate quite wildly from week to week. If you have a two-week sample to pull that from, it'll be a little more representative of the true skill level of your team. You know, like you could have a a 4% shooting percentage one week, so you'll score, I don't know, four goals on 100 shots just for argument's sake, and the next week you could have a 12% percent shooting percentage with your team. These are the sort of things that go up and down throughout the course of a season and and throughout the course of each and every week. So extending it to over two weeks takes out some of that quote unquote randomness or variance in those stats coming and going. And you'd expect the best team to win that category more often than not if you have a longer sample size. It's the same way that you measure an NHL team's quality by how they play over a month as opposed to a week of games. And when you say how you evaluated NHL teams' quality, you mean how we do when we're analyzing. And a specific NHL game only goes for, of course, three periods. But I get what you're saying. So yeah, I agree with you. And I would love the idea of two-week matchups. If only the NHL season could just go all year long and never end, then it would be amazing. And we'd have so much time to do two-week matchups. The main reason we decided not to do it in the Cupful is that each league has only 14 teams. And so if you had two-week matchups, you'd only end up with like nine matchups during the fantasy regular season. You wouldn't even be able to play each team in your league once and we decided that's just not as fun we want everyone to at least play everyone else at least once so that's why we decided in the end to go with one week matchups even though it increases randomness and gives teams a chance to just get lucky and like you said if you happen to have a good player playing four times and your opponent let's say a Sidney Crosby but Penguins are only playing twice. That's a big advantage for you. We do use two-week matchups in the playoffs, though, because those are the real important matchups where you're going to get eliminated or you're going to move forward. So for those, we decided it's worth it to go with two-week matchups. Okay, Brian, next thing, still talking about scoring. Another big debate we had just recently was if you decide you're going to go head-to-head, you have to then decide, are you going to count by categories or by total points? So the difference is with total points, you just assign a weighting to each category you want to count. So for example, you could say a goal is worth four points, an assist is worth 2.5, a shot is worth 0.5, a hit is worth this, a block is worth this. You can just throw out as many things as you want, give each thing a weighting, and basically then every 
player is going to contribute a total score to your team for your matchup. And at the end of the week, whoever has the most points wins the matchup. With categories, you basically are competing in each category separately against your component. So if I beat you in goals, but you beat me in assists, we each won one category. And so at the end of the week, we might be like, oh, Brian beat me five to three. He won five categories. I won three categories. So I'll get five standings points and he'll get three standing points as opposed to just straight up who got more points overall. So Brian, we've been doing categories in the cupful for the last couple of years. We'll get into which categories a little later, but just in general, you were telling me just a couple of weeks ago that you wanted to consider maybe switching to points. What made you want to switch? What made me want to switch was sort of, I mean, we've definitely struck this theme that you've pointed out of random and fun is at one extreme and competitive and very meritocratic on the other end. Not to say a head-to-head win is not well-deserved. There are ways to strategize to make it so. But if you're talking about a true representation of skill, well, that would be on the other extreme. And that's why I also thought points might be a good idea to consider for the cupful, namely because it rewards you for all that you do. Like, if I'm competing against you in the goals category, Elon, and I just destroy you, like, 20 to 4 in a given week but you beat me in assists like 17 to 16, that's just like 1-1. We each get the same number of standing points from that exchange. However, if we were doing points, I would be rewarded by having such a greater magnitude of one category and you only being just this close to catching me in another. So I felt that it rewarded every piece of a team's play rather than, you know, head to head, just as like, okay, well, you just need one more than the other person. And the rest is just cut and forgotten. Points also allow you to wait a little bit like, and I mean, wait like how much you weigh, uh, with a T at the end. Yes. (laughs) You know, the way I'm talking about waiting in line also ends with a T by the way. Oh yeah. (laughs) But it's not, but you don't say I weigh. Okay. This, this is not a good thread to continue going. So you can choose how much worth, how much value to assign to different sets a little better. Like in head-to-head, on some platforms, you do have the ability to rate whoever wins the goals category is getting two wins, and whoever wins the assist category to get one win, and whoever wins the hits to get half a win or something. But in points, you don't have to even mess with all that because you can assign different values to different on-ice events. Like, I know that I think a goal is worth more than a block. In head-to-head categories, there's no distinction between who wins goals and who wins blocks. I can load up on blocks and hits or whatever, you know, say non-offensive or non-skill necessarily categories are involved and still beat you just because those categories exist and outnumber this quote-unquote skill categories. In points, you can't do that. And you could also still say, hey, you know, like I don't think a hit or a penalty minute is worth that much. But hey, I'll throw you like a quarter of a point for a hit, or like negative half a point for a penalty minute. There's some different scoring configurations that you can play around with and have fun. Yeah, I think especially for goalies, there's so many different things you could give credit for, like shutouts, which are very rare. So I feel like when you're doing categories and you have a shutout category, it's going to be very random who wins it, because most weeks it'll be 0-0, maybe one week someone will get lucky and get a shutout and win one nothing. With points, you could just say, oh, you get like five points for a shutout. If it happens, it's great, but it doesn't like totally swing a whole category. But okay, Brian, my counter argument to you, and I do like points, and we're in a league with points. I would say that being in a league that counts points is easier than being in a categories league. 
league because basically every player can be reduced down to a single number. I could take a look at player A and player B when I'm deciding which one I want to pick up from free agency and I could just see, okay, player A has been averaging 3.5 points a game and player B has been averaging 3.7 points a game. So probably I want player B. Like obviously you have to consider if you think it's sustainable or fleeting and all of that stuff. But in general, you just sort of have to look at this one number and decide how valuable is this player and if I think he'll be able to keep up his number of points and then pick him up. So I feel like it's very one-dimensional with categories. It really opens up the game and makes it a more interesting game to me. So this is more like maybe, again, gameplay versus merit. Maybe the points gives a more fair representation of whose team was better, but I think the categories is just kind of like a more fun game to play because I could be thinking, hmm, so my team's pretty good in goals, but I consistently lose in shots. So what if I make a trade of this like goals guy for this shots guy? Or, you know, like, oh, maybe I should get more blocks. So maybe I should drop one of my assist guys for a blocks guy late in the week to try to swing this blocks category. So I think there's a lot more gameplay yeah. there. And that's why I prefer playing categories. But I like both. Like, I don't mean to say that people who play points yeah. are doing it wrong. But I just think for me, I have a lot more fun. We're in a points league. I enjoy it. I find it, to be honest, kind of easy. We've won that. That's our joint league that we've been doing. We've won the last <laughs> two years easily. The year before, we had a bad luck in like one playoff matchup. But we won the President's Trophy that year as well. And I feel like it's just so easy because I just have to be smart enough to rank people by their points. When we go into our drafts, I take projections, I put them through our league's point system, and it gives a pretty clear idea of who should be worth more. And I'm always so surprised why people in this league of ours don't pick defensemen that block a lot earlier <laughs> in the drafts, because blocks are worth like 0.5, and guys like Shea Weber end up at the top of the league scoring every year, but we still don't keep him, and we could get him in the draft every year somehow. So I don't know. Yeah, but on, on one hand, on one hand, Elon, that has to do with competition. Like, this is not a league of the most dedicated poolies. I think uh, if you were in a more competitive league or if we were in a more competitive league, you might find it a little more interesting. And I don't like you. You mentioned how players have an absolute value, right? Like, you know, they're going to average three and a half points per game, say. And and that's that. Like, it doesn't matter how they get there. That's what they. Yeah, I was simplifying a little bit, but I think I know where you're going with this. Like, I'm thinking you're going to say, oh, it's not that simple. And, and it's true. There is one fun thing with points where you could be like, do you want the steady guy who you know just is yeah. going to get you your three blocks a game? Or do you want to yeah. take the swing on a guy like Yarmer Yager, let's say, who doesn't contribute in any peripherals? If he doesn't get a goal or assist, he's probably going to give you like zero points or even negative points if plus minus is counted. Yeah, that's the strategy of it. You have to decide when to swing big and when to just go slow and steady. If you can handle like a Radko Gudas, say, he's going to get you two and a half points, but his ceiling, 80% of the season, is two and a half points. Or you can go for a guy who's liable to, to break out for a six or seven point game once every, I don't know, six or seven nights. But he'll get fewer fantasy points than Radko Gudas if he doesn't get any points. And hey, maybe he'll be a minus two if your league is so archaic that it still counts plus minus. Right. So th there is strategy there. And I, I think that is how, you know, each player looks like they have an absolute value. But there's still some wiggle room into which ones fit best on your team within a given week. Yeah, so like I said, I really don't think there's a wrong answer here. We decided to go with categories in the cacupful in the end, just because I think it's more fun in terms of more gameplay mechanics. There's still a lot of strategy with points, of course, and you're having to decide these players, but I just think categories in the end just gives you more things to tinker with. You could have a little bit more fun also in making trades where you're going to be like, oh, I need assists, you need shots, we should trade together. Like, it opens up these avenues, and I think it's fun. Okay, so in the cacupful, we decided to go with categories. We also had a 
discussion about which categories we should have. And so let's just recap. In year one of the Cupful, we went with five skater categories and three goalie categories. We had goals, assists, shots, special teams points, and blocks for the skater categories. And then we went wins, save percentage, and saves for the goalies. And then after year one, we had a really awesome patron, Jeff, who you guys have heard on the podcast. If you're longtime listeners, he talks about auction drafts with us every year. So he suggested that the teams that just picked up goalies that played a lot of games those teams ended up being more successful because you had wins and saves, which were both just counting stats. And even if a goalie wasn't doing that well, he'd still get you a ton of saves. So we decided to tinker with it a little bit. And since we were using fan tracks, which has all of these nice composite categories where you could have a lot of things combined, so we were able to use a category called save points, where it was like the number of saves minus eight times the goals against. And that was your total number of save points. And so we replaced saves with that to make it reflect a little bit more of how the goalie actually did. We also, instead of wins, it was nice because it was really frustrating if you have a goalie that loses in overtime, they get nothing if you're just counting straight wins. So in the couple last year, we used this stat on Fantrax called Goalie Points 3, where it counted two points for a win and one point for an overtime loss or shootout loss, just like in the NHL. So that kind of gave you some credit, even if your goalie lost. And we were able to even also give a bonus point if you got a shutout. So those were our categories. For next season, we've decided to make a change and actually just axe one of the goalie categories. We decided that goalies were having too much influence on the final results. Three out of eight categories. It's a huge percentage, 37.5%. It was basically the case where if your goalies sucked one week, you had a very uphill battle to go through in order to win. And considering goalies are only like two or three members of your you know, 18-man roster, it seemed like an unfair balance. Bri, do you have any recollection of counter-arguments we got to this or reasons why some people would have wanted to keep more goalies? Like, I am just want to give people an idea of how we made this decision because it's tough to always decide how much weight should you give goalies who are obviously so important in hockey in real life, right? In a real NHL game, if your goalie sucks, you're going to lose no matter how good you are. In fantasy, you want to give goalies their proper weight, but you don't want to give it so much weight that like your whole draft was meaningless aside from those two or three picks where everyone picked their goalies. Yeah, so I think, well, you you sort of just touched on the reason to consider, well, you know, does a goalie have that much say in how their NHL team does? Does does the fantasy just reflect the reality? And I mean, to some extent, yeah. Like if you have Carey Price, he should be able to win you weeks almost by himself. Uh, the, The question is, though, like if you have three goalie categories and you consistently win them all, And then you just need to load up on, say, blocks or shots on goal, things that are generally readily available in free agency, and you are halfway to winning. You've got a 500 record just on the back of one player. So yeah, that is the the plus, which is that, you know, goalies are really important in real life, and they can have this big of an effect. And so why not give them that opportunity in fantasy? But on the other hand, it sort of does take away from the importance of like 80% of your roster. So I, I think for that reason, it's it's okay for us to have gone down to have goalie stats be two of our seven categories. I'm interested to see how it plays out. Maybe something will enlighten us uh, along the way. Like by playing this way, we'll realize, ah, goalies, we should have included more. But as of now, I, I don't think I'm going to miss that third goalie category, especially because on a weekly basis, it is such a crapshoot. Like save percentage for me like is a must 
count category if you're counting goalie stats. And that is one of the most variable. Like one bad goalie start can sink you. So even if you have, like last year, Henrik Lundqvist, he had some of the higher highs in the NHL, but also some of the lowest lows. Like he did not string two similar starts together. He was pretty much back and forth between above average and terribly below average starts. So there is that variability in what a goalie can offer you. And having that be such a large part like yeah that is save percentage and we're still counting it in two of the seven categories but we also had the save points which was a really great stat that rewarded you for saves made but penalized you for goals against and having so much variability it wasn't necessarily goalies that was the the problem it was the variance associated with goalies over one week periods that made us decide that we need to take out one of those goalie categories and and just decrease their impact right size their impact so to speak yeah like still goalies are accounting for almost 30 percent of the categories yet only like you know 10 15 percent of your roster so still the goalies are getting their due and they're very important to our league but you know a little bit less so we had the one option right to remove a goalie category we could have also kept three goalie categories but added more skater categories we could have added hits or face-offs or plus minus, or one of these many other categories that a bunch of leagues use. And we've had this discussion before on the podcast in previous years where we've discussed how to design a perfect league. I know, Brian, you're very much against counting things like hits and plus minus and these things that you feel like aren't representative of a player's value. So can you speak on that and say why you don't like having them in fantasy? Sure. Yeah, I think it's as simple as this. If a player is doing something that helps their team in real life, that should help your fantasy team. I don't think you should be rewarded for having a player who goons it up and gets misconducts or fighting majors or a player who is hitting all the time because he never has the puck when he's on the ice and can't be a part of a unit that drives play. I mean, if a defenseman is getting hemmed into their own zone and racking up the blocks and hits, that's not helping their team. So for that reason, I'm not a big fan of it. Plus, minus is sort of a joke stat on the whole. And for those who haven't listened to us talk about it in the past, it's because you can have literally, you could be doing everything right and have a goal go in while you're on the ice. Or like you could just get on the ice. Anyone who's played like the NHL video game series be a pro like version, you know, when you just get on the ice and your team scores a goal or lets up a goal against, that happens. And that's frustrating and has nothing to do with your player. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's why there are some stats that I prefer not to count. Do I wish there were more things we could measure like, hey, like primary assists or zone entries, these things that players can do to help their team and we can add those categories? Yeah, I'd be all for that. Uh, In the meantime, I'm not so great on like rostering crummy players because they contribute in essentially negative ways to their hockey teams, but positive ways to your fantasy teams. Yeah, like I definitely see the argument for having more categories. It just makes it more of a fun game, you know, just in terms of now you have more things to think about. Also, every week, if you say have 13 categories instead of seven categories, then every week teams in the league are accumulating more standings points. So you're going to have more overall standings points, which will reduce maybe some variability. Like if you have, let's say, a not great week, you still have 
an easier chance to catch up because you're getting so many more points every week. So there are arguments for it, but I agree with you, Brian. I want to look at my fantasy team and see awesome, good, like really good players and know like, yeah, this is, look at all these great players on my team. I don't look at my team like, why do I have Mark Borowiecki and Roman Polak? And then it's like, oh yeah, because they both like hit and block. We do have blocks there just because we wanted to give some weight to defensemen. Even though defensemen actually do have a lot of weight in fantasy already if you have roster spots for defensemen just because of value over replacement. But that is for another podcast when we talk about general fantasy hockey strategy. Well, I'll also add in for defensemen, yeah, blocks. I, I just said like if you're blocking a lot of shots, it's not necessarily a good sign, but it is a sign that you're getting a lot of ice time. You look at the D-men who are getting some of the most ice in the NHL, they're blocking the most shots. So it's I wouldn't call it a really great proxy for ice time necessarily, but I would call it still something that indicates some kind of value and is a skill also a defenseman that blocks shots. That's a good thing. As long as it's not a result of them giving up so many extra shot opportunities against them, like too many opportunities compared relative to the ice time that they get, such as uh, like Chris Russell. Sure, yeah, and then maybe people are thinking, well, why don't you just count ice time as a category? I feel like the problem with using ice time is just there's no variability there. Like, most defensemen in the league, I feel like, get the same amount of ice time every single game. So it seems kind of boring to have a category where you already know going into the week who's going to win. So that's why, at least with blocks, there's some variability there. But it is, like you say, a nice proxy. So that's it for categories. I did want to bring up this one thing that a lot of leagues have, where in order to win certain goalie categories, you have to have a minimum number of goalie starts. So usually for save percentage or goals against average, these like, rate types of goalie stats, you can't just like play one game, have a shutout out and then all of a sudden you like sweep all of your goalie categories except for wins just because you know you had that 100% save percentage and zero goals against average what do you think about min goalie starts because on one hand I think it is fair because you're giving the person the ability to just get an easy save percentage and goals against average but on the other hand I feel like maybe you're taking away some strategy in terms of oh should I play another game to try to help give myself wins and shutouts and saves and whatever other goalie categories do you have in the couple, we only have wins and save percentage. So I felt like we need to have a minimum. And we did go with a minimum of two games. Nothing crazy, but at least a little bit. Because if you just get a shutout, you could get half your goalie categories right there. There's not that much incentive to keep going. Yeah, exactly. It's a matter of being able to balance. I mean, on the, on one hand, you want to make sure volume stats like wins and saves are balanced with rate stats like save percentage. On the other, you don't want someone you know, saying, well, I am satisfied with one out of three goalie categories every week. So they'll play their goalie, they'll hope for an amazing start on a Monday or Tuesday, and then they'll just sit the rest of the way. Uh, I'm a fan of having to, like, I mean, I already made my case for having two-week matchups, for having matchups where your goalie only has to play once for you to earn the win in the category. Uh, You can obviously see the connection between the two that I I wouldn't like. So for that reason, I'm a big fan of having mandatory minimum goalie starts, but not prison sentences. <laughs> I like how you put that. Okay, one other thing about categories is if you're in a categories league, it's possible that you'll have a tie, which isn't a big deal in the regular season because whatever, you had four wins and I had four wins. So we both get four standings points or eight standings points. And then maybe if you tie in a category, that's worth one standings point instead of two. In the playoffs, though, if I'm playing against you and then we tie in categories, if there's eight categories and we each win four or in the couple next season, there's seven categories. But let's say we, you know, you win three, I win three, and then we tie in goals. Who moves forward in the the playoffs so we actually last year went with whoever had a higher standing in the regular season that was the team that 
won the tiebreaker for playoff matchups. I decided in the end that it was maybe giving too much weight to the teams that did well because they already, first of all, get the advantage of playing weaker teams in the playoffs. Plus, we have it so that six teams make the playoffs and the top two get a bye in week one of the playoffs. So I thought you're getting a bye, plus you get the tiebreaker. It was like too much. So I decided that let's just go with, you know, something more in the matchup. We decided in the end to go with goals, then assists, things like that. What do you think about that, Brian? And also we've had, we just posted about this in our Facebook group today. And some people are suggesting that we maybe include some more possible tiebreakers, maybe like head-to-head matchups or some goalie categories. Because like we only just went with the first tiebreakers, goals, then assists, then special teams points, and then a coin flip. We've had some people suggesting that we add maybe some more. The thing for me about head-to-head matchup, I don't like the idea that the tiebreaker is determined before the matchup even starts. I feel like it should just be based on what happens in that two-week matchup. It's not like in the NHL, when two teams play each other in the playoffs, it doesn't like not go to overtime they just go to the team that was higher in the standings or that did better than the other team in the regular season i agree on one hand it does like having that regular season head-to-head be a tiebreaker that would make me feel like each and every matchup is so important to win on the other hand i don't want my two-week matchup being decided by what was a one-week matchup where anything could have happened like i know last year I think the person I played in the playoffs in the cupful who who did knock me out it was Jeff. Uh, he beat me like seven nothing in the regular season, and I beat him seven nothing in the regular season. I think our regular season records against each other were just about equal, or maybe there was like one loss off from a tie situation. Anyway, I wouldn't want to, like you said, have my playoff matchup determined by something that's already happened. Like if I knew. That was going to happen. I would have tried really hard that week and I would have like cycled or not thought that an injury that I, you know, like if I'm holding a player who was hurt and I just figured that I would grit my teeth and bear it and that turns out costing me my whole fantasy season, I would rather do everything based on that one playoff week for that reason. Yeah. And what do you think about maybe after goals, assists, and special teams points? Maybe let's throw goalie wins in there before the coin flip. You might as well have your goalie categories mean something if you tied, right? Yeah, sure. I guess I don't have really strong opinions about this one. The coin flip is 50-50. Is the goalie wins category less than or more than a 50-50 chance? Like, can you really drive yourself towards a win in it more than you can drive yourself towards a win in a coin flip? Probably. So sure. Yeah, I mean, it's very unlikely that we're going to get to the fourth tiebreaker. But sure, we'll do it. Good suggestion. How about if two teams are tied between three categories, like our first three tiebreaker categories, we just name them co-champions of their division. Well, that's good for the finals. What if it's the semifinals? Then do they both play in a matchup against the finals team? No, everyone else is... Oh, yeah. Yeah, but they get to count their stats together. They combine their stats. I think... It, come on, if something that freakish happens, then go ahead. Take the championship. You deserve it. For no particular reason other than entertaining me. All right, well, so people listening to this podcast could decide what things they want to take into their leagues and whatnot. If you want to take Brian's <laughs> idea of weird ties having value in your league, then go for it. Okay, Brian, let's move away from scoring now and move on to rosters. This is another big decision you have to make when designing your league. What positions are you going to have? Like, obviously, you could just go straight up 10 players each for each team. Doesn't matter if they're forwards, defensemen. I guess probably you would want to at least have like separation of forwards and goalies or like skaters and goalies. But hey, you could do whatever you want, right? Like you're designing your own league. With the Cacuffle, we like to go a little bit deeper. We like to split it up into, you know, centers, left wings, right wing. The main reason for that is just it more represents a real NHL team. You can't just fill your NHL team with all centers and then expect to do really well. 
But beyond just having this concept of centers and left wings and right wings, a lot of leagues, and the couple included, has some more flexible positions, like let's say a forward roster spot or a skater roster spot, which includes forwards or defensemen. Maybe you have one of those just because it could get tricky when you're in free agency and you, you know, need a player for the day, but you happen to be full and center and you don't have enough right wing, you're forced to pick up a right wing. On one hand, maybe that's good. That's more strategy. On the other hand, maybe you want to have some of these flexible positions. So I'm curious to know where you stand on this. I wonder if maybe we're being too flexible in the cuckuffle because right now we have two center, two left wing, two right wing, four defense, and then we also have one forward and one skater. So you could use both of those flex positions. I was considering bringing up to you if we should maybe make it less flexible, like maybe remove one of those roster positions or make it more like has to be centers, left wings, right wings. In the end, we decided to keep it how it is, but I'd be curious to know your side of this discussion. Yeah, that would certainly make it more competitive and up the degree of difficulty however this is one part where i definitely come down on like i'd rather just get to play my players if there's some reasonable limit on how many centers i can play in a given night then that's uh, that's good enough for me i it kills me to have to make those decisions you know to to bench a person at one position because i have all my slots full for that particular position because it really is a coin flip on a nightly basis and it's just gut-wrenching to try and make those calls regularly. And so I think it's a little more fun to have the flexibility within reason to play as many of your players as often as you can. Because otherwise, I, I mean, if you have really strict limits, you might have an open right wing spot and two left wingers on your bench. And on one hand, yeah, that is your fault for having an imbalance of roster spots. And that's still going to happen in the cupful from time to time. But I just don't feel like it's fun if that happens often. Yeah, I remember I was in a league with you like four years ago or something. And I recall I saw Redeem Verbata in free agency and he had been doing really well for Phoenix or maybe they were Arizona at that point. But it was like while he was having a really good season and I really wanted him and I saw him there. I was like, oh, he's so good. But I already had whatever my three right wing spots filled and there was no flexibility. And it was like I had three all star right wings and I had to be trying to trade one of my right wings for a left wing was so frustrating. And in the time that I spent talking to people and trying to work out who could maybe trade for one of my right wings for left wing and then after a trade is made you still have this two-day wait period for vetoes and then by then verbata got picked up and i remember being very frustrated because i just didn't have room for him in my roster so it is nice to have a little bit of flexibility there but not too much so again some of these things are just a balance i think we've hit a pretty decent balance in the cupful there's also the goalies so with goalies we have two active goalie spots but you know in most leagues you have your bench and you could decide do you want to hold two goalies three goalies four goalies because if you have only two goalies on your team for two spots and you're playing against someone who has three goalies on their team they're going to get a lot more starts because most weeks you know all of your goalies aren't playing on the same night you're going to have off nights teams playing on like Wednesdays and Fridays instead of Tuesdays and Thursdays plus sometimes backup goalies play so having more goalies will usually get you more games even if you only have those two goalie roster spots we made a decision for this year Brian I guess for all the couple we've always had that max four goalies we don't want someone to just load up on like every single goalie so you have to have max four this year we decided to make a minimum of two goalie spots before there was no minimum so if a team was losing in all of their goalie categories they could theoretically drop all their goalies obviously this would be something to do more in the playoffs when you're desperate but you could drop all your goalies and just go all skaters to try to at least dominate the skater categories 
Now, especially with this year where we've removed one of the goalie categories and now they only count for two out of seven categories, we decided we didn't want to give people also the option in the playoffs to just punt those two categories and just go for the five skater categories and give themselves a huge advantage there by having all of these extra skaters. So that's why we decided to end up with just minimum two goalies, maximum four. Yeah, no more pulling the goalie. Yeah, okay. Another big decision when you're deciding on your roster is obviously, actually, this is a really big one. Do you want to have a deep or a shallow league? You could decide eight players per roster, or you could decide 25 players per roster. And this is going to make a big difference when you look into free agency. Are you going to see Derek Stepan and Chris Kreider like always available because your league is super shallow? Or will guys like that never be available? And when you look in free agency, it's going to be a lot of players maybe you haven't even heard of. And you have to listen to every week of Keeping Carlson to hear who are the new players breaking out because otherwise you're not going to find anyone that you can pick up do you have a preference Brian for being in deep leagues and shallow leagues I think that most people would say deep is better just in terms of you know you have to know more players and learn more about the league and maybe it's a little more complicated but on the other hand maybe there is some fun to being in a shallow league and having to decide when do I drop my Anze Kopitar if he's slumping if you're in a deep league you feel like I can't really drop him he's still not going to be better than like these random guys in free agency if you're in a shallow league it's kind of like I mean normally Kopitar is worth rostering but if he's slumping is it worth it so there is some different strategy there depending on how deep or shallow your league is in a shallow league it could be really exciting to see players i i was in one last year and i saw players like monahan and kopitar i'm trying to think of any others i think john carlson like pretty much all the defensemen that were struggling tory krug even they all ended up in free agency so having to make that decision between the guy you drafted who's probably still pretty good and suddenly this other option you have who would have been better on draft day but is now struggling, that can be a really fun decision to try and make. And and it's a whole different kind of decision than the ones you do make in a deeper league. I, I guess I shouldn't say it's a whole different decision, but there certainly is a, a different feel to it when you're deciding, huh, do I want Enze Kopitar or should I let him ride on free agency a little longer. I prefer the deeper league personally. Like for me, it's a little more engaging because if you're in the shallow league, there could be a lot of cycling of those really high-end players. And there's a lot of guys who are about the same skill level where if you've hit the sweet spot with a deep league, there should be like a high-end crop of free agents. Not a lot, but enough that just keep getting added and dropped, added and dropped between teams that you are getting names that would pique your interest entering free agency but are not terribly useless and are still comparable to the other top options in free agency too. So it depends like also how closely you want to follow the NHL and follow team's depth charts. Like, you know, if you want to play more casually, then shallow is definitely the way to go. You're not going to be scratching your head wondering about who this player is if you're in a shallower format. But again, it's all about finding finding that sweet spot where you've got free agents who are interesting but not obvious. Yeah, so I think we've struck a pretty good balance in the cupful. We have 14 teams per league and 18 players per roster. So that's 252 rostered players per league. Obviously, not including guys in your IR, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But I think 250 players, that's kind of like, yeah, you're getting, like you said, not too bottom of the barrel. It's not like it's only third line and below players. There's still some top six guys available in free agency, but none of the super obvious guys. So I like it. Brian... Another thing related to rosters that I wanted to bring up, just because you've brought this up a couple of times to me, and I can never tell if you're joking or serious about it. Sometimes you've suggested that instead of drafting actual goalies, like, you know, Henrik Lundqvist or Antti Ranta last year on the Rangers, 
some leagues actually have this thing where you just draft a team's goalies. We had a patron that always asked us about which team goalie he would want for that given week. And so you just say, I'm going to have the Rangers. And then so no matter which goalie is playing for the Rangers, you're counting just the Rangers wins and the Rangers save percentage overall. I feel like I like going with individual goalies like most leagues are. I'd be curious to hear the argument for team goalies. The argument for team goalies is that it helps control for the injuries. Like an injury for a goalie is huge. Like if you draft Braden Holtby in the first two rounds and he goes down 10 games into the season and Grubauer is snagged off the wire before you can get him or was drafted to another team, you're just kind of screwed and it sort of, it feels like it's not fair, even though, you know, that that could happen to you at any position. Although in goalies, of course, you have fewer replacement options available for the most part. So I think that would be the advantage of going with team goalies. It also takes away the unpredictability of who's going to start in a given night. Like if you have the handcuff, but you only have room for one goalie to play and you're following reports and following reports and you still don't have a confirmed starter far enough ahead of game time for you to make the right roster move and have the correct goalie in there. Or like if your goalie gets pulled on, there are a few reasons why team goalie simplifies the whole thing and and takes out some of the more frustrating, irking parts of choosing which goalies to start. But then that's what makes goalie starting such an interesting aspect of fantasy play. So team goalies correct for it, but does it also take away some of the fun and the wheeling and dealing and recovering from injury and trying to predict the right starter? There's something to be said for having the power to decide all that and also something to be said for, well, I have whoever's starting for the Leafs tonight, so I'm not that concerned. And if Freddie Anderson gets injured, whoever starts for the Leafs instead of him for the next two months, I also already have. Yeah, well, that's kind of a bad example because you'll have Curtis McElhenney and you'll be in a lot of trouble in save percentage. (laughs) But maybe in Washington is a good example or, you know, like the L.A. Kings for all of those years. Like, actually, that would have been a better example than Holby because that happened last year to a lot of people. They drafted Jonathan Quick and then he went out early. But at the end of the day, I feel like going with team goalies seems like such amateur hour to me. Like, we spend so much time on our podcast throughout the regular season discussing goalie injuries or even more exciting when a backup goalie is doing better than the starter and we're wondering, oh, wow, is Calvin Pickard going to steal the job from Varlamov? Then usually Varlamov just gets injured and it doesn't matter. But you know, it's exciting to sort of make this decision of when is it time to drop a goalie? Oh, it happened with Chad Johnson and Brian Elliott. You know, and you had to decide which one to go with or do you need to have the handcuff? All that strategy goes out the window when you use team goalie. So it seems like just a little bit too easy. I don't think it's as fun. But like you say, at least you don't have to be stressed out about if your goalie's injured that all of a sudden you're not going to get enough starts. And then the last decision we made for the couple related to rosters is this idea of a can't cut list. Most fantasy platforms give you the option to have a list of players that just no team is allowed to drop that player but then in the cupful especially in the playoffs last year there were some players who if they just had a bad schedule in the last week even if you had an all-star player let's say you have Patrice Bergeron but Boston only plays twice that week it's in your best interest actually to drop him but then the platform wouldn't let our players drop him and then maybe they got upset about it so we've decided for next year to not even have a can't cut list just because we think we have smart enough managers in the couple these are people who are supporting a fantasy hockey podcast after all that they're going to know whether or not they should cut I think in order to turn off a can't cut list you have to make sure you have savvy players and also you have a commissioner who's going to make sure someone isn't just dropping all their players because they're disgruntled yeah there's not much more to add there if you have people who are smart enough and engaged enough 
No one's going to drop someone they shouldn't, and it does give them a little more flexibility if their IR is full and they need to to work around injuries. Or sometimes there are extenuating circumstances there were in this past year's Cupful, and that's why we feel like we don't need that anymore. Yeah, actually, a big example is on leagues that only have IR and day-to-day players aren't allowed to fit into your IR, like not IR+. plus. If you have a goalie that's day-to-day and you're in the finals of your league, like there's no point holding on to this goalie. And if you can't stash from an IR, you might as well drop him. And if you're not allowed, that does kind of handcuff you a bit. Okay, Brian, before we go any further, I want to take a second to thank the sponsor of this week's episode of Keeping Carlson. And those are our friends at Seat. Geek! SeatGeek.com. SeatGeek! They are the place to go to buy tickets to sporting events and concerts and all the other things you want to do. It's the summertime. There's no hockey game, so go out! Go outside! You don't need to be researching fantasy hockey all the time. Like, obviously, listen to this podcast while you're on your way to the venue, but why not go see a concert or maybe see a baseball game or a basketball game? Or, or no, basketball's at the same time as hockey, right? Okay, maybe you can't go see basketball. You know what I'm talking about, though, and if you're going to go to an event, you want to make sure to get the best value, and SeatGeek is really great for that because they show you when you're searching for tickets they pull from all over the internet they're looking at all these different sites to aggregate all the best possible places you could buy your ticket and then they also rank the prices by value not only by price but also like is this a good price for where the seat is you got to check it out to see it SeatGeek also has a great app so it's just a very easy ticket buying experience you should check it out with SeatGeek either the app or the website and Brian listeners of Keeping Carlson even get a special bonus for listening to this podcast right They sure do. If you have never used SeatGeek before and you're about to use it to make your first purchase, you might as well, in your mind, just knock $20 off the price you're paying for those tickets because SeatGeek will send you a rebate for that amount if you enter the promo code KEEPING when you make your first ever purchase with SeatGeek. Again, when you're about to order, when you sign up for your account, enter the promo code KEEPING. And they will send you a $20 rebate off your first purchase. Wow. Wow. Seat geek. Be a geek. Buy a seat. I want to get them to hire me to do commercials for them. And I want to use this voice. The NHL 94. (laughs) EA Sports. It's in the game. That is pretty good. Be a geek. Okay. Brian. I want to next talk about trading. This is something we haven't really talked about in our previous episodes. We all know when you're in a fantasy league, one of the most fun parts of it is you could trade players with other players in your league. I think there's pros and cons to this. And we had a patron, Nils, that mentioned that he has something in his league that I found very interesting. This idea of trade counter offers. So you know that feeling when you have a trade announced in your league and you see all of a sudden you get this email. It's like player A has traded away this player to this guy for this other player. And you're like, what? Like, he traded Dustin Bufflin for Tyler Toffoli? I would have given him something better than Toffoli for Bufflin. I didn't even know that he was trading Bufflin. And you get so frustrated. At least I know that's me. Anytime I see a trade that I feel like is unbalanced, it frustrates me to no end, especially if the owner wasn't even talking to me and giving me the chance to give my offer. So in Nils's league, he has this idea of trade counter offers. So once... A trade has been accepted. There's a window where every other owner in the league can go and make a counter offer to either of the teams making the trade. And then if the one of the people making the trade wants to 
accept a counteroffer, then the initial trade gets canceled and the counteroffer goes through instead. I thought this was a really fun idea just to try to reduce the number of imbalanced trades because I feel like imbalanced trades, and I think it's a pet peeve for me. I don't think everyone else feels the same way. Maybe even Brian doesn't feel the same way. I just find an imbalanced trade could ruin a league. Like if I'm competing against someone, I'm in second place, they're in first place or vice versa. And then the person I'm competing with makes a trade with one of the bottom feeding, maybe dumber teams and really takes advantage of him. All of a sudden, the guy I'm competing with has improved his team in a way that I feel is kind of like, ugh, very frustrating to me. Maybe that person is even friends with the person lower down. So that's why they were talking. They went out one night, made the trade. I didn't even have a chance to like make an offer myself. So I feel like an imbalanced trade is something I want to remove from my fantasy experience. That's why I like the idea of counter offers. Of course, when we proposed it to our amazing patrons in our Cupful Facebook group. By the way, to those of you listening who are patrons and are like, I didn't see any of this, we have a separate Facebook group just for talking about the Cupful, and there's a link to it in the sidebar of our main patron Facebook group. Anyway, Brian, why don't you talk about the arguments against introducing this counteroffer mechanism? So what this mechanism did was essentially if you were able to successfully negotiate a trade, it suddenly opened up the possibility for the whole league to negotiate a better trade than the one you just offered. And there was also no guarantee that the best trade would win out. Like, I could be technically offering the best package, but maybe the owner finds someone further away from them in the standings or offering something that they feel is better for them, even though I know it's not because I'm so smart. Uh, You can't control that and you lose your trade because of it. And a lot of people also think, including me, that being a fantasy GM is a skill, like staying on top of what players are available, checking out the trade block, chatting up owners, throwing out feelers and offers just to get a sense of of what sort of deals you feel like you can make. Having all that work just go to waste in a way, like if your trade is counter-offered away, if your trade is stolen right from under your nose, that doesn't feel so good. And you you essentially lose that advantage because you do all the work and then in big flashing lights, you say, here's the deal I just made. Can anybody offer something better? So it does take away the necessity, I think, of being a fantasy hockey GM, which is knowing what's happening around the league and being able to sniff out those deals before other people can. Yeah, I hear you. I guess it depends what you're playing fantasy for. Like, I kind of like the idea that the shy nerd in the basement could still do really well in fantasy because it's all about crunching the numbers, looking into who are the best free agents, being savvy with who you drop and who you add, being good at drafting. I feel like just because maybe you don't have as good social skills, you're not as close friends with other people (laughs) in the league, that shouldn't maybe affect your ability to win your league, I don't think. It's definitely not. I've dealt with people who have some very poor social skills, but it's still like, you can still talk trade even with, I don't think it's a matter of social skills. I think it's a matter of time invested and time looking into something. And also this system also offer, and I'm being like hard con here, even though I actually could have gone either way, but, but for argument's sake, this system also gives the opportunity for your opponents to improve themselves when no opportunity would have existed had you not made a move. So, like, let's say I'm making a deal with, you know, the the sixth-place team, and I'm second, and uh, they hit accept, and suddenly the first-place team beats my offer, the sixth-place team accepts that counter, suddenly I've increased the distance between me and first-place, even though first-place didn't necessarily take any initiative, 
And that opportunity for them to make that trade wouldn't have existed had I not done the legwork for them. So I essentially set up, I created a brand new situation that didn't exist otherwise for my competition to improve. That would be very frustrating. Can I talk about like my ideal fix for this yet? Or do you want to talk more about the pros? Because there are there are plenty. Like you can talk about how th- that's my perspective from being the GM who initiates the trade, but there are 10 other GMs who have a really great opportunity that didn't do any legwork that can just waltz right into a trade that's been negotiated and see what they can do to get in on it. Yeah, I would say not only are there all the other GMs that weren't involved in the trade, there's also the GM receiving the counteroffer. Like, yeah, if you were able to pull off an imbalance trade in your favor, then for sure this feature sucks for you because you're going to get your trade maybe canceled and someone else is going to get a a decent trade. But on the other side, if you made a bad trade, you all of a sudden get all these exciting counteroffers. I think it would be a lot of fun and it's fun for the other people in the league. So I feel like one big pro of this would just be the excitement of it. And that's why it was something I was interested in trying in the couple just because I feel like normally the experience of getting that email saying a trade has been executed in my league to me that's like a negative experience usually it's like oh no my competition is improving so i liked the idea of that changing and becoming a positive experience for me where i could be like "Ooh, that's interesting Ooh, maybe i should make a counter offer i wonder if i could get this player i could offer someone better oh he traded away like i said to foley for bufflin why don't i offer Jonathan Druin for Bufflin, who I think is much better than Tyler Toffoli, but I really need a defense, so that trade would still work out well for me. So I think it would have been fun. In the end, we decided not to go with it, just because a lot of patrons brought up a lot of these cons, like you said. And you know us, we want to make people happy, and in the end, we thought maybe this was too big of a change to introduce, especially since trading wasn't really broken. It's not as if there were so many imbalanced trades all the time. If this was like an actual problem, then it's something we would consider and something we're definitely going to be watching this year in the cacuffle as trades are happening. I'm going to look at each trade and think, hmm, I wonder what would have happened if we had counter offers available for this. Would that have made the league better? So it's something we might reconsider next summer, but we're not going to do it this year. But I think it was something fun to bring up on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it was a fun conversation to have. It it solves a problem, right? It takes away the possibility of anybody getting totally ripped off, or at least significantly decreases that because they could still take the lesser offer at the end of the day. But that hasn't necessarily been a problem for us with such knowledgeable poolies in our cupful. And so my blue sky idea to solve this to hit the perfect note on trading and making it competitive and fair while also protecting against these one-sided deals would be to to do something sort of like auction trading so you can still negotiate and work out deals on your own but once you're ready to trade that player you have to put that player up for auction and let's say that player goes up for auction for 48 hours Everybody can make their offer, including, say, somebody you've already negotiated with and you know to expect that offer. And then if you don't accept an offer within 48 hours, that player is locked to your roster for like four weeks. Say, just for an example to throw out there. I feel like this would be a way to get everybody involved. And it's like it's like a proactive trading block. It's not necessarily like you have a deal and someone else is going to rip it away from you. You're saying, hey, I have Jonathan Druen. I don't need him. I need a defenseman instead. So here he is. Somebody make me a good offer. And then, hey, at the end of the day, if you don't find anything, well, you've essentially done your due diligence and you still have Jonathan Druin at the end of the day. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think one other dimension to consider, you know, we've talked about sort of the fun versus rewarding the best teams. Maybe another thing is how complicated is your league? That sounds really hard. (laughs) Yeah. Also, I don't know how we would implement it. Yeah, that doesn't exist on any platform. It would have to be in like a standalone web app or something. I remember when I was in the Dauber Experts League a bunch of years ago, they had this like website you had to go to and log in. It was totally separate. And you put in your free agent bids for the week and you prioritize and you ranked. And I I can't remember all the specifics, but it was like this standalone web app that then somebody would input all the results from into the league. It was kind of exciting. It felt very intense. So that's what this would be too. Yeah, okay. And you know what? Speaking of bidding, we can't do that. But we do have another aspect of bidding in the Kakuffle, which is a lot of fun. So let's move and talk about ad drops and free agency. And another discussion we had recently was whether we should switch to regular free agency or keep going with this FAB system. And FAB stands for Free Agent Acquisition Budget. And this is a feature we've been using in the Kakuffle for the past couple of seasons. And I really like it. So let me describe it quickly for people who have no idea what I'm talking about. So you know, in a regular league with regular regular free agency, you have your team, then there's all the free agents that aren't owned by any team. And at any time, you could drop one of your players and pick up someone in free agency. But sometimes it happens where all of a sudden, a free agent becomes a lot more appealing to everyone. Like, let's say if there's a goalie injury, back when Tampa had Bishop and Vasilevsky, and if Bishop would get injured, you would know, oh man, time to grab Vasilevsky ASAP. Or sometimes, you know, a player might break out, get called up, like Jake Gensel got called up, had that really big four-point game, was it, or two, I don't know, he had a really huge game when he first got called up, and then the next day, everyone really wanted him. So if you just have regular free agency, you're kind of just rewarding the people who happen to be by their phone or be looking at hockey news when the thing, when the news item comes out that makes it clear that this free agent is all of a sudden very valuable. And so that's not necessarily making it fair for everyone in the league. But if you happen to be asleep or you happen to be at some dinner and all of a sudden you miss out on this really good free agent. So there's this option to use the free agent acquisition budget. It exists in Fantrax and also in ESPN. I don't think it exists in Yahoo, unfortunately. I think it does. Oh, maybe it does. You could check for yourselves. Do your own due diligence. Anyways, how it works is that you could set a daily auction for your league. Everyone, let's say, at the start of the year has a $100 FAB budget. And again, it stands for Free Agent Acquisition Budget. So you have your... So maybe I kind of did like the ATM thing, right? Like the machine, even though it already has machine and people still say ATM machine, Free Agent Acquisition Budget. Why am I saying FAB budget? I'm saying budget twice. Okay, I've gone off the rails. How it works is that every day you have an auction. It's a silent auction where you decide for any free agent that you want how much you're going to bid for that player. I'll be like, I really want to pick up Vasilevsky. I'm going to bid $5. And you don't know what everyone else is bidding. And then whoever has the highest bid gets that player. Then you have a tiebreaker, say like whoever's lower in the standings or something or random. And that way, if a lot of people want Vasilevsky, they all get an equal chance to go after him. And it's just a matter of who was ready to put more skin in the game. You could end up, you know, bidding like 20 and it turns out you could have gotten him for a dollar. And they're like, ah, I bid too much. But that's part of the fun and part of the strategy. So I've had a lot of fun with it. But at the same time, Brian, we actually did consider scrapping fab and going back to regular free agents. So I guess it's more fun to have a debate here. Do you want me to give the argument for why I wanted to switch to regular free agency? Or do you want to do that? No, you go ahead and do that because I like fab as it is. I don't have much to say. I think it's worked so well for us. So go fab. 
All right, so I'm going to give you my argument why I thought I was interested in potentially switching back to regular free agency. And the thing is, with Fab, you can't just add someone anytime. You could only add them during the Fab auction. So we were doing it at 11 a.m. every day. And sometimes starting goalies would only get announced at like 12 or 1 or even sometimes really late. Like these like LA Kings games or Anaheim is notorious for this. They don't announce their starting goalie till right before the game. So if I wanted to spot start a goalie from free agency, it was impossible to know who to bid on my fab auction. You basically have to roll the dice. I think the backup's going to play today because the starter played yesterday. So you make a bid and then you could end up adding a guy who doesn't even play. Or another really frustrating thing that could happen is let's say right before game time, it's announced that one of your players has the flu and he's not going to play. And you're like, oh, I'd really like to put my player in the IR or drop them and pick up someone else to play today because I'm in a close matchup and I need those shots or those blocks or whatever. So that could be very frustrating. That's why I thought maybe it would be better to go with regular free agency. But in the end, we decided to stay with Fab because it's so fun and it's so fair, even though it does have its frustrations. The one compromise we made is we pushed the Fab deadline up one hour. So now it's at noon Eastern time instead of 11 a.m. We didn't want to push it too close to game time because once the Fab auction is over and the players get added to your bench, you have to decide then who to place in your roster and you have to give people enough time between the end of the auction and the start of games to actually go and set their roster for the day because you don't know you might have had multiple bids on different players. So you don't know who you ended up with yeah and sometimes they're those rarely entertaining afternoon games that mess with the schedule and so that would be an issue for setting fab times to miss too many of those it is unfortunate that it can't be closer to game time and you can't have like a totally level playing field with everybody knowing if their goalies are starting or not rather than one team knowing and one team not depending on time zone or even just like the coach's preference But hey, we do the best we can. So yeah, if you're using a platform that allows you to use the free agent acquisition budget, I would definitely consider trying it out. You are definitely going to be hurting the people who are getting push notifications from the score app or whatever every single time something happens, but you level out the playing field. And I think it's it's a lot more fair, even though there is the frustration of not being able to add a guy in these frustrating circumstances like i said okay brian we had a suggestion from dave he really wants to add the ability to trade fab so if i'm making a trade i'll say i'm going to give you max patch ready and in exchange you give me 50 of your fab dollars first of all this isn't supported in any of the systems but even if it was what would you think brian would you want to be able to introduce trading fab i have a reason for not liking it but i'm curious to know I, I see the merit right if you're low on fab if you've bid a lot then maybe now you're willing to give up a player to get some more fab but uh okay it adds some complication what do you think i'm into the idea it's just like within the last several years the nhl introduced the ability to retain salary in trades and it made trades I, I think it made them simpler to do or at least made them a little more common because there was more to negotiate with especially with the cap uh, i'm not sure that would totally come into play for the same reason if we could trade fab but i'm still into the idea i can't really think of an argument against assuming that the platform we use can handle it i'm not sure why not so i'm, I'm very curious to hear what your reasoning is against being able to trade fab 
Yeah, so first of all, yeah, the one main reason is just the platform doesn't support it. It would be a lot of work for the commissioner. Basically, after every trade, if there's FAB included in the trade, then the commissioner would have to go in and update the FAB budgets for both of the teams. Not impossible, not a huge job, but, you know, in the couple we're managing, potentially like 11 divisions. We'll get into, by the way, at the end of the show, we'll explain how our divisions work for the couple. It's quite a thing. It's very exciting. And by the way, spoiler any person listening right now is going to have the option to join the couple next season. We'll get to that later. But yeah, one reason I don't like the idea of trading fab is I think that it really makes it complicated. Maybe to me too complicated. Maybe I'm just dumb. I don't know. I don't like this idea of not knowing what people's budgets are that I'm bidding against. Like I feel like if there's a player that I want, I want to maybe look at my competitors that I think might want that player. Like, let's say this example I gave of, like, Bishop injured and now people want Vasilevsky. I'm going to look at which teams could use a goalie for, like, the next two weeks or however long the injury prognosis is. And then I look at how much fab they have and I could sort of gauge how much I think they're maybe going to bid or maybe based on their history. And then you could sort of make an educated guess. Like, it's not just completely random deciding how much to bid. You could actually put some strategy into it. But if people have the option to trade for fab, I don't know if the guy I'm bidding against, I'm thinking definitely of Dave here because I know he loves to blow his fab and I don't know if maybe he has a negotiation going where he's about to trade a player for like 50 fab dollars and so I have no idea how much to bid so I just feel like it just makes the whole thing more complicated knowing how much to bid against your teams I just like the idea you have a budget it's like the same as like having a max number of acquisitions for the season which we'll get to in a second you know you get 40 ads per year that's your budget you have to use it how you want I don't think you should be able to just trade with someone who doesn't want to use all their acquisitions like you have a hundred dollar fab budget you have to strategize how much to bid per player for the season I don't think you should get this free gift of just get more fab if you bid too much early on but it's not a free gift you have to pay something for it and sure maybe you what you what i notice a theme here like with you you don't like trading because you don't trust the rest of your league to be able to handle themselves and make sure everything is even-sided you are very, very much afraid of one of your main competitors getting the upper hand on you by swindling someone else. And yeah, that is annoying. But I also don't think it's as real a threat as you think it is, especially (laughs) if you're doing the same thing, if you're trying to throw out offers and figuring out what you can do to improve your team. I think you would rather focus on just tinkering and improving your own team through free agency and opening up all this possibility of making trades is like too much for you to handle. Yeah, maybe you're right. It's like, I don't like that I don't have control over what other teams are doing. (laughs) Maybe. But also, I feel like with trading fab, also near the end of the season, you're going to have some team that's like, didn't use any of their fabs. They have like a surplus of it. They don't even care. They might say, oh, here, take $10 for this player. Like, you, I don't know. I just feel like fab also has different (laughs) value to different teams based on how much they've used. So you can't even value like in a trade, like, is this player worth 10 fabs? But it's the same same way that NHL teams value capital space yeah well it's unfair right like in the well, no, nhl i don't think it's unfair think- the nhl like a team gets themselves into a certain cap situation whether it's right up against the cap or with plenty of cap space and then they have to make moves accordingly if they want to try and improve their team like if you leave yourself a lot of extra cap space you can take on the cap hits from other teams and get like a little reward for doing so so i don't see why not allow that opportunity in a fab trading context. Like if Dave blows all his fab, hey, that's an opportunity for me. Like I'd like to scrimp and save. So I'm going to say, hey, 
for 10 but like you you want some more buying power and free agency tell me what you'll offer me i don't have to give it to him but it at least gives me some leverage and another way to deal if i like my roster players as is Okay, so first of all, I just want to clarify, when I said it's unfair in the NHL, I was thinking more in terms of like how some teams have higher budgets, you know, how the Sens maybe aren't going to even spend all of their cap just because their owner doesn't want to spend a lot of money. But, but nobody in the cupful has an internal fab budget. Yeah, okay, I know. So that was kind of silly. And I'll bet you people are listening to this and being like, Elon, what are you talking about? Like, I'm sure everyone's agreeing with you right now. And agreeing you with just, Dave. you never want anyone to trade. <laughs> so, Brian, do you think that you should be allowed to also trade your remaining acquisitions for the season? Um, no. I don't know. I haven't thought about that. Well, what's the difference? I've scrimped and saved and only made, you know, there's total max allowed 40 acquisitions. I've only used 10. Dave has used 35. I'll be like, hey, Dave, why don't I throw you five of my acquisitions? Yeah, sure. So just trade everything. Maybe, like, give me one of, give away an IR spot. Give, why even have rule? No, okay, now I'm going too off the rails. <laughs> No, you're trading, like, you're trading buying power. Like, hey, it's some reward for you not needing to use all your fab. Hey, you can get a player instead that you wouldn't have been able to get out of free agency. You can just like bid directly on that player. It's like, hey, if this guy hit free agency, I'd pay seven bucks for him. And you could just do that straight up. Or like, oh, I, I have so many moves left over. I'm not going to need them all. Some other guys really needed to use them all to keep up. I can use that as leverage to poach a guy from their team. Okay. All right. You know what? I hear what you're saying. And I think you have found a weakness in my biased nature, maybe against trades. I would probably prefer if there were just no trades at all, or like maybe only trades early on. Like, you know, I like the idea of if I drafted too many goalies or whatever, or if I get an early injury and I want to like rebalance my team trade. I like trades that are like goalie for defense, you know, when it's like clearly meeting needs. When I see like just these like ripoff trades where it's like a center for a much worse center, or as you know what I'm saying. I don't know. Yeah, you always assume that the trade is a ripoff. I think if you start from the basis that the trade is going to be fair would you still dislike the idea of trading fab or even roster spots okay so i think two separate things i think next year in the cuffle since we're the commissioners we see every trade in every single division i think we should keep a tally maybe even just a private tally and we could publish it at the end of the year so no one knows i don't want to insult anybody but i would like to keep a tally of for all the trades if we think they were fair trades or imbalanced trades i'll be curious to see that just because that will help if i I'm convinced that most trades are fair, then maybe I'd be more willing to just like let people do anything they want since everyone's clearly making good trades. I don't think that's the case, though. I think that there's always like snakes and uh, I don't know. What do snakes eat? Mice. Ladders. No, they don't know. They climb the ladders. Or no, the snakes just hang out on the ladders and eat you as you're walking around. No. Okay, I got to replay that game. <laughs> Have you ever played snakes and ladders? No, you walk around and you either climb a ladder or fall down a snake. How does that make there sense? You, you fall down a snake. It should be slides. It should be ladders and slides. I think this is a great business opportunity for you if the fantasy hockey podcast thing doesn't work out. Okay. All right, so let's go on. to. So we already started talking about acquisitions. We talked about free agents versus fab and then this whole discussion about trading fab. Another thing that we had to decide is this whole idea of the max number of acquisitions. So there's kind of like four different options, right? You could have a max for the season. Each team is allowed 
50 free agent ads. And once you've used them up, they're done. You could add as many as you want in any week, but you have 50 overall. You could also just have a weekly max. That's what we actually did in the Cupful last year. We said four ads per week. And then no matter how much you use at the end of the week, you reset and you have four for the other week. So you don't get to accumulate them for the future. You just have your four max per week, but unlimited for the season. You could also just say both like four ads per week and 50 total for the season, or you could just go make it a free-for-all and say unlimited ads all the time. In the first year of the Cacuffle, we just had a season maximum. I believe it was 45, and a lot of people really didn't like it because a lot of people really enjoy making free agent acquisitions. I'm one of them, by the way, for whatever you could say about me not liking trades. I love free agency. I love tinkering with my roster and dropping people and picking people up. I feel very constrained when you have a season maximum where you have to be stressed out all season long. Oh, if I use too many? Oh, how many more do I have left per week? When you have like a weekly maximum you know, you obviously still have to strategize and not just blow it all on Monday, but you don't have to worry about the long-term consequences. And you could say that maybe that's a good thing or maybe that's a bad thing. It's all part of the strategy. We decided after season one, a lot of people didn't like the season max, so we switched it to a weekly max. I, By the way, I don't think we're going to have any disagreement. There should be a max, right? We shouldn't just let people just add and drop a million times all throughout because then you could just, you know, for your bottom player on your roster, just every single day, if he's playing then play him and if he's not playing then drop him pick up someone else and then drop that person pick up someone else and basically you just like maximize your number of games and that seems unfair you should have to stick somewhat with your roster but brian what do you think about this weekly max versus total max versus both so yeah this is where we switch where i'm like no you drafted the team that is like your parameter for working within for the season sure like you might want to tinker and you might want to do this and that but you shouldn't be constantly making moves if you drafted a good team like i see having a lot of moves as being a way to game the schedule like that's the primary purpose of it to get a couple extra man games here a couple extra man games there and i just not a huge fan of that like i i understand like you love it it's a part of strategizing it's just like the argument for having a lot of categories right it's not necessarily about having the best quote-unquote hockey team it's about being able to manage so many different variables and win on as many as possible. And managing the schedule is another one that you can do with unlimited roster moves. Like I was once in a league way back, and actually this is not quite the same point I'm trying to make, but I was in like the finals or something and penalty minutes was a category. And I was just like cycling like three guys a day to add three fighters when people still fought semi-regularly uh, to, just to try and catch some penalty minutes. They actually ended up scoring two goals for me. I think Adam Burrish was one of them, but I still lost in penalty minutes and the finals. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. But yeah, I like having some sort of restraint or some sort of system that rewards being restrained so that you're not just constantly cycling and trying to get extra games because that is something that takes, well, it's a huge, huge time sink. And I don't find it a particularly entertaining one to try and figure out how I'm going to get the most games played. And that's why I think you should be able to be rewarded for not making a lot of changes from your roster after day one of your draft. 
Yeah, so this is the opposite of our last conversation. I feel like with the trading for Fab, there's a lot of people listening being like, Ugh, Elon, stop being such a loser. Let us do it. Here, people are going to thank me for fighting against you, Brian, because you wanted to reinstitute a season maximum. And I was like, no, I just think that it's not as fun. And I know for sure. And at the end of the day, we're making like a couple for our listeners. And I just had a feeling that if we made a post on our Facebook group saying, hey, guess what, guys? We're reintroducing a season maximum number of acquisitions. We would get a lot of people being like, what? Why? Why'd you do that? I liked it how it was. And we would have like maybe one or two people max being like, oh, yay, I'm happy about that. I know that you like it. And I appreciate, Brian, that you decided to let us still just have the weekly max. And by the way, the weekly max, we're not allowing like six acquisitions per week, four acquisitions per week. You know, maybe you want to save one for an injury. Then you could like maybe do one or two to get an extra couple of goalie games or you could use them for blocks. Like it's not too many, but I can understand it's still a lot. Like definitely teams that use all four of their acquisitions per week are going to have a huge advantage over teams that don't use any. So it is a bit of a trade off. We could have gone down to three we decided in the end to keep it as four because people seemed to have a lot of fun last year and i liked it but i get where you're coming from and i do agree that in a perfect world you should have some sort of reward maybe that should be the tiebreaker brian for the uh, playoff matchups whoever used the fewer yeah whoever made the fewest roster moves in that playoff matchup wins i actually like that me too Ooh. okay tweet at us at Kevin Carlson, or if you're in the Cupful Facebook group, write a post and let us know. Or maybe when this episode goes out, I'll make a post with a poll. Although, I do, I do think that might be, like, needlessly discouraging roster moves, too. Like, that just adds another reason to be afraid of burning one, although there is no season-long limit. Uh, I don't, yeah, I no, don't no, know. No, but it's I'm not saying, Brian, that it would be for the whole season who used fewer moves. I'm saying within the matchup. So it's like, oh. I could make the move to try to, like, get these extra blocks to win the category, but I'm potentially risking that if blocks ends up being tied, and then that ends up being a tie, I lose a tiebreaker. It's not a huge loss, but at least, like you said, you wanted to have some reward for making fewer moves. This might be a happy compromise where you have four moves per week, no season max, but tie goes to the fewer moves. I think that that's reasonable, right? Like, if you look at a matchup and they're tied, who was better? The team that was able to get that tie with making fewer moves, I think, is a more impressive team. I don't know. Something to think or about. what if you made it a weekly category? Well... Oh, that's very interesting. Do you want to punt the... But then what? Would you just give people unlimited otherwise? Like, you can do as many as you want, but the person who makes fewer wins the category? I feel like there would still be a max. Like, maybe a higher one, like five or six. But it's just so, you know, your moves really have to land. And you can't just game for extra... You know, you can't just throw darts blindfolded and get extra games and hope it helps. It has to be, like, a, a more deliberate action i don't know i don't know this is the first this is coming up brand new between you and i right now so i more time to think about it but i wonder if fewest moves made as a category would add some uh, some fun yeah i don't know i don't know well i guess if you had like a lot of categories with only seven categories it seems like a lot of weight to put on that maybe in a points right. league you could give a bonus five points uh, it's something to think about but i do like the idea of the tiebreaker or negative five points for every move you make. This could also just be adding, like, making moves that can be stressful enough, like, with who you have to drop to add someone new. So wouldn't want to add a whole lot more stress to that experience, I guess. Yeah, I like the idea of the tiebreaker. I think everything else you're saying is a little bit too out there. It's interesting to talk about. But uh, let us know when you listen to this in the Facebook group. What do you think about this playoff matchup? 
first tiebreaker goes to the team that made the fewest moves during the matchup. I think that's interesting. Okay, Brian, let's move on. Oh, one thing I want to say about this, though, before we move on, one thing I totally hate and I will never do again if I'm managing a league is having a total max with no weekly max could really ruin your league. Because, Brian, and hey, I want to give you credit. You beat me fair and square in our semifinal matchup in the league. We played against each other last season based on the rules of the league. But it was so annoying. We both went into this matchup. I had maybe like 20 moves and you had 20 moves. And we were pretty even. And then just like, it was like a battle of just every day. We, we would each make like five or six moves. And then I wanted to conserve some moves potentially for the finals. You decided to go all out on one of the days and like use a bunch of moves. And I was thinking, oh no, Brian, like now you were going to beat me. You got so many games and you did beat me. But then you had no moves left left for the final because you had to use them all to beat me so it was sort of like we both ended up losing in this scenario and you got killed in the finals or not no killed. wait uh, i did not did get fine. killed okay. in the finals I mean, I'm there... sorry i'm just being i'm exaggerating to make a point but i don't need to okay but the I bottom line is pulled it off you did you did very well all i'm saying is i think you should always have a weekly max it maybe it doesn't have to be four maybe it could be six or whatever but i don't think you should just let especially in a playoff matchup even if a team has saved all of their acquisitions all season long, I still think it's a bit crazy to just let them use them all in a single matchup. Also, like, in your matchup, you had such an uphill battle because you had, like, two moves and your opponent had 25. Also, you had no fab left and your opponent had so much fab. So he was able to drop even his superstar players for a day they weren't playing because he knew he'd be able to bid a dollar on them the next day to get them back. So it was very ridiculous. We definitely need to put controls in place so that can't happen again, which we will by adding weekly... uh Weekly yeah, maximum. I agree with you about the need for weekly maximums. I should not have been allowed to do what I did, but hey, it was a loophole. I exploited it. I finished ahead of you. Hey, there you go. I still won the President's Trophy. I have that to hang my hat on. Okay. Uh, next, I want to talk about IR quickly. That's always a decision you have to make in your league. How many IR spots you want to have. Very quickly, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, and I'm sure you do. Why are you listening this long into a podcast about fantasy hockey leagues and you don't even know what IR spot is? But basically, and now I'm insulting the one person who doesn't know what it is, of course. But yeah, if you have a player who's injured, you have the opportunity to not have him waste a spot on your roster where you're not getting any value of it, but you don't want to drop the player you know, this happens to Chris Letang every year for half the season, you could just put him in your IR and then pick someone else up from free agency, no cost to you. So like the cost to you is you lose your really good player, but you're able to put the player in AR and not have them waste a spot on your roster. So a uh, decision you have to make when designing your league is first of all, how many IR spots to have on your roster. And then secondly, how lenient you want it to be in terms of who's allowed to go in your IR. So the most strict is just only players who are literally in the injured reserve by their NHL team, like using the NHL's IR system. If you do that, then any player who just has the flu or is day-to-day, or even sometimes it's like a long-term injury, but the team just had no reason to put them in IR for different cap reasons or roster number reasons, then you're just stuck with the guy. If you have IR+, Plus, like Yahoo has, or ESPN has this O symbol, or with Fantrax, you could just specifically say who's allowed in IR. You could decide if you want to just let any injury at all go into the IR. Do you have a preference, Brian, of whether to use IR+, Plus or straight-up IR with the strict NHL injury reserve? No, I don't like using the strict NHL injury reserve. As we learned last year, I think uh, it was Winnipeg Jets beat writer Ken Weeb who illuminated us as to how injury reserve decisions are made for each player. And it's not always just about the injury. Like there are other implications at play and little nuances here that don't directly relate to whether a player 
can play or not. Like there's there's about the stage of diagnosis and prognosis involved. So you can have a guy who's injured and not going to play for another month at least who's still active on your roster or active on the NHL team's roster. And so I think the ability to put someone on IR plus who you know is out, but just not officially on IR in your lineup and be able to replace them quickly is only fair. Yeah, though, of course, then you have the thing where if a player just has the flu and is missing just that game, then you're able to put them in. But I like that. I think it's fine. Like, you're punished enough. The players you have on your roster are the players you think are the best. Anytime someone's injured, you have to put them in the IR and pick up someone who was obviously worse. Because if you thought the player in free agency was better, then you would have just picked them up in the first place. So I think it hurts you enough to have an injured player. And also, if you have, like, a maximum number of acquisitions per week, like we do in the Kakupful, I think you're being hurt enough that you have to use an acquisition and you have to get a worse player. So I agree with you. I think that just any injured player should be allowed in the IR. I know one thing we maybe disagree about, though, is how long should you be allowed to keep that player in the IR? Because what happens is you put a player in your injured reserve, then they're no longer injured, but not all the fantasy platforms, depending on your rules, you could leave the healthy player in your injured reserve and just kind of have this guy. He's not contributing to your roster now, but you could sort of delay the decision because normally when the player is healthy, if you want to bring them back in, you have to drop someone from your team in order to bring the guy back from IR. But sometimes I really like the strategy, actually leave the guy in IR, wait and for your next player to get injured and then you could swap them like what's the rush why if you have no one obvious to drop maybe just keep the guy you have dibs on him when you want to bring him in you could maybe decide to drop him later i like that but obviously that seems a little bit unfair because you could just keep players stashed so there are different rules that different platforms had we were really strict in the cupful last year we made it that once a player in the ir was no longer ir eligible you weren't allowed to even set your roster like you weren't allowed to move a player from your bench into your active roster you couldn't do anything So if you hadn't set your roster for the next, like, couple of weeks, you're basically forced to fix up your IR situation. I thought that was a little bit harsh, but Brian, I'll let you talk. What do you think about this this whole thing? It was a little extreme. There were some really, there were some extenuating situations where, like, it was totally unfair. Like, someone, you know, had an injury earlier in the day and they had, like, hours to react to be able to get their goalie in their lineup. There, There were things that just didn't work out exactly the way that we had planned but on the whole i like the idea of putting some pretty severe restraints on anybody who wants to have someone on their roster who is eligible to play but is just better for them to be stashed in their ir illegally the general way most platforms handle ineligible players like healthy players still in an ir spot is you can't add anybody new to your team while you have the healthy player in IR, which is a good start, but I don't think it's enough of a deterrent for people to just, you know, grab guys, keep them if they're healthy in their IR and still get by with the rest of their roster. Like, good for them for doing it, but it also totally dilutes the free agent pool. Like, I remember in in the league you just referenced, Elon, that had the unlimited weekly moves, you had four guys in IR at one point. I swear three of them were healthy, and you were good. Like, you were just rolling that way for a month or longer. And meanwhile, I was looking for scraps in free agency, knowing full well that legally there should be at least two or three more quality guys. Like, I would have been happy to have any of the guys off your roster. Good for you for building that roster. But those guys should have been in free agency. So I don't think those restraints are always strict enough. And that's why I'm a fan of being even stricter and harsher on anyone who's keeping ineligible players on their IR. 
Yeah, I think the problem with what we had with the Cacupful last year on Fantrax, like I said, when you couldn't even do a roster move, the situation would come up where you had a player who was injured at the start of the day you didn't know and then like maybe right before the game started it was announced they're no longer injured and they're gonna play so all of a sudden your roster got locked but let's say you hadn't yet decided which goalie to put in and all of a sudden you know the goalie starts got announced and you wanted to put your goalie in and now you were trapped you couldn't even put your goalie into your roster because you had an ineligible person in your IR but you couldn't drop the person from the IR because their team had already played that day if it was an earlier game so then that team was completely stuck I think probably the best way to go and I'm sure Fantrax supports this they have so many flexible options is maybe it should be that if you have an ineligible player in IR you should have to get him out within let's say a few days like let's say three days or four days and after that your roster locks as opposed to it locking right away I think that would mitigate the problem of like the day of being stuck but still not uh, letting you keep the guy in forever and ever and still let you manage your rosters maybe that would be good I think Fantrax allows that. You'll have to check it out. Brian, what do you think about just the number of IR spots? We go with four in the cupful. Can you articulate why we don't have fewer or more? Why not unlimited? (laughs) Would you like unlimited? I mean, my first thought was that I want that many IR spots to be generous. Like you've already sort of said, nobody likes to have a player injured. And that is penalty enough. You shouldn't have to think about dropping them. And losing them for nothing when they are someone that you'd prefer over, say, five or six healthy players when this injured player is healthy, of course. So taking out that penalty of not only losing a player to injury, but potentially losing them for good or just losing a roster spot if you do drop a healthy player so you can keep holding on to this injured player on your roster. Why not unlimited? Well, I think that would probably allow for a lot of stashing which is the code word for having an ineligible player in your IR. So I don't know. I guess I've never really thought about having unlimited. Why not? Do you know? Well, I think if you're allowed to add IR eligible people onto your roster and then throw them right into your IR, then you know that could be a good strategy. Just find all the injured players, put them in your roster, and then whenever they're healthy, you have dibs on all of these guys if you had unlimited spots. Of course, there's ways to mitigate this by having acquisition limits and also in Fantrax they have an option for one of their premium features is that you can't add injured players onto your roster so then you wouldn't be allowed to do that so I don't really see a reason why not to allow more if you have those features but yeah I think four is enough where we don't want people to take advantage there's probably clever ways even we're not thinking of where you could take advantage of of having too many IR spots I think you definitely don't want to be in a situation where like you only have one IR spot we get people messaging us all the time oh I have Barkov and Latang and they're both injured which one should I drop it's like, ugh, that's so mean that you even have to make that decision. You're already losing elite players. Do you also have to, like, drop one and give it as a gift to a player who happens to be lucky and not have an injury? I wish there just weren't injuries at all in fantasy hockey. But obviously, hockey is a real sport being played by real people and injuries happen. So I think four is a decent number. We haven't had many complaints in the couple. Rarely, like once in a while, someone has more than four injuries and then they complain but obviously you would but that's pretty rare that's really bad bad luck luck. and like of course it compounds the bad luck by saying well there's not enough room in your ir so you are finally gonna have to drop someone but there is there is a line somewhere that we need to draw saying there's a maximum amount of players and maybe then you trade one of your injured players to another team to free up a spot in ir yeah okay one more thing i want to discuss brian before we end the show and give our big announcement you know i feel like we're doing this big announcement thing wrong i almost think it should have been earlier in the episode because well i actually know i trust 
Everyone who's listening be so into everything that we have 100% listener retention from the first two Mm. minutes of the episode to this point. So we're even going to have a debate on the show about our announcement and the people (laughs) listening have no idea what we're talking about. (laughs) This is very compelling stuff. I think, Brian, the announcement, which now everyone is so curious about and they're going to end up being underwhelmed, but we're also going to keep announcing it every episode moving forward. So it's okay to leave it to the end here, I think. Okay. But one more thing I want to talk about first before we end the show with our much-anticipated announcement. We're burying the lead. We've spent an hour and a half burying the lead. (laughs) The content of the show was the lead. (laughs) We appreciate people listening to the show. Okay. (laughs) Like I said, I still want to talk about the draft, a very important part of the fantasy season. It's the first thing that happens. That's how everyone gets their teams. There's two common ways. You have snake draft, where you just take turns. One, two, player one, player two, player three, you know, and then like then usually we snake back. I guess you could also have a straight-up draft of, like, you draw your numbers one through 12, let's say, for a 12-person league. Then you go one to 12, one to 12, one to 12, like the NHL does. That's obviously very unfair to the team who has 12 and gets last pick in every round. It's more fair to have a snake draft where you go one to 12, then 12 to one, then one to 12. So everyone gets, hopefully, the same options of the values of players. But still, when you're in a draft like like that sometimes you just don't get options if you're 12th pick you're not getting eric carlson you're not getting Sidney crosby you're not getting Connor mcdavid so that's why another popular thing to do in fantasy is to have an auction draft where everyone gets a budget and then basically you go through each player in the nhl like you take turns nominating player then every person in the league gets the same opportunity to get every player you decide how much you want to bid and then if you pay too much then you're not gonna have as much to bid on players later on you're gonna have to have crappy players at the bottom of your roster but at least you got the superstar that you wanted so it's more fair but of course the cons of doing an auction is that it takes a lot longer and i guess a lot more prep is needed as opposed to a snake draft where you could just sort of have your list of rankings even for the amateurs and they'll end up with an okay team if they just go by who's the best player available according to my list you know you said this was the first thing that most leagues do i feel like we should have talked about it earlier but i'm, I'm gonna start arguing with you about i'm, I'm getting carried away with this arguing idea of this episode we blew it brian let's re-record let's start over okay or just cut and paste this to the first part whoever listened this long you deserve it you've earned wait did you just suggest that i cut and paste it what do you think who do you think i am i have a full-time job brian i can't just be i'm gonna edit this podcast to cut out all of our gaffes but i'm not gonna start moving things around and trying to make it make sense all of your gaffes But anyway, going back to the auction versus snake situation, one reason why I love the auction is because going into your draft, you can have any team you want, any player you want. If you're starting in a snake draft and you get assigned seventh or eighth spot, you're not getting Connor McDavid. No chance. You're probably not getting Eric Carlson or Brent Burns or Sidney Crosby. They're all going to be off the board before you even get started. In an auction draft, it's level right from the start. You can have Connor McDavid if you're willing to pay for him. And I think that's the way that star players should be determined or what teams they go to in a fantasy league. I think that's a really fair method for building a team. And it also brings strategy into it right away. Like you are making big strategic decisions right off the bat. Again, this is like a a competitive idea. And I've rarely ever met someone who hasn't auction drafted who's into the idea. But almost without exception, once someone has auction drafted once, they're into it. They are committed. They like it forever, except for Jay, 
one of our patrons who unwillingly auction drafted uh, for this year's cupful, and uh, he wasn't so pleased with the way it went, and he doesn't want to do it again. But most people are totally into the idea once they give it one shot. It's a really intimidating thing to get into because there's also not a wealth of knowledge or like databases online that give you suggested player values in an auction. Like you really have to read the market and there's a lot of dynamic flow throughout the auction to figure out how much a player of a certain type is worth at different points in the draft. And even nomination order is another strategic part. So yeah, there's a lot more to it. Whereas in a snake draft, it's almost predetermined. Like we're doing this long draft on fan tracks right now for a Roto League, Elon, that you and I are in with some patrons. And it's a lot of fun. But the first 30 players are also the names of the first 30 players in our patron rankings. And they didn't go exactly in order, but they went not so far. If you have a bunch of people using the same resource or the same few resources, then you're going to have a lot of leagues that have similar distributions of players amongst teams. Whereas in an auction, it could go really any way. Yeah, I did my first auction in the couple last year, and it was a lot of fun. And you weren't sure it would be. Yeah, I was nervous about it, but it was a lot of fun. So exactly what you said, Brian, you have to kind of give it a try. And maybe even a mock draft isn't enough. It was fun, like actually doing the prep and trying to figure out how I wanted my team. I sort of started structuring like to prep. I was like, okay, I want to have this player, this player, this player. And I sort of built a mock team based on how much I thought players would go for and then as the auction was going I was like oh this guy went for higher than I expected so I have to reduce the amount I'm going to spend on this position it's very complicated I'm not I'm probably not selling it well but I don't need to we don't get extra shares in fan tracks if people use auction drafts or anything like that by the way, we've done a few episodes about auction drafts. If you go to keepingcarlson.com and then there's a search there and search for auction, you'll get the links to all the episodes with Jeff Good, where he shared a whole bunch of really useful auction strategies. Brian, you mentioned that we're doing this long snake draft. So the way it's working, it's on fan tracks with the patrons, like you said. And there's 12 hours between each pick, and we started it already, and it's going to be for next season. So, you know, we have many months, so we have time to do this, and it's been a lot of fun. You sort of wait a long time, sometimes a day or two for your next pick, but it's a nice way to be drafting early in the summer, and also it's good if not everyone can make it to their draft. You know, it's sometimes hard to schedule for 12 people to all get together at the same time, or for the couple, it's 14 people. I kind of like this long draft. Of course, the con is that we don't have all the information. We don't even know who's going to make the roster. It's kind of nice to do your draft right before the season when you know more about what's going to be happening. Also, like where players are lining up on their depth charts. But Brian, have you considered at all switching to a long draft for the couple, maybe starting in like September 1st and going for a month up until October? Do you think that's something we should consider? It would be interesting. It certainly takes away the difficulty of scheduling everyone. And we make a lot of effort to make sure everyone can attend their draft live, but it's not always possible. It can be hard to recover from a team that ends up being auto-drafted poorly or you don't have someone to step in for you, which we really try to encourage. So a long draft would solve that problem. But what you just mentioned about, you know, there's different information available at different times. I think that would be a huge issue if we were doing it, especially in training camp. You have player value fluctuating nearly every day. There's always some bit of news that raises a player's value or decreases it. And having all that in flux during your draft seems like a really difficult thing to manage and perhaps a little unfair depending on when you're drafting or if you just draft someone who then got injured and then you need to replace them quickly. Maybe it actually is an advantage that way. Like if you draft Jonathan Quick in one pick, 
and then you find out he's injured for six months by the time your next pick comes around, you can try to correct for it pretty quickly. Uh, So maybe that's a positive. But I think overall my point is that I'd rather have everybody draft based on the same available information at the same time rather than an ever-changing amount of information that is constantly changing the value of players while the draft is happening. Yeah, plus there's just nothing that beats the excitement of the two, three-hour draft. Like, it is really fun. But also, I would recommend maybe setting up a league and doing one of these long drafts, because it has its own fun strategy, and and it's fun to anticipate the pick, you know, for hours and hours. I don't know, I've been really enjoying it. Anyway, Brian, that's all the things we wanted to discuss about how to design your own league. I hope people who have been listening have enjoyed the episode and also have gotten some ideas for how they're going to maybe tweak their league, or if you're thinking of starting a new league, hopefully we've given you some ideas. Obviously, if you want to run any ideas by us, you can tweet at us at Keeping Carlson. But, Brian, let's get to the big announcement. We've been talking about the Kakuffle all episode long, and now I want to say that the Kakuffle sign-up is open! It's time! People can start signing up for Season 3 of the Kakuffle. It is open for any patron of Keeping Carlson. If you plan to be a $5 a month patron of the podcast, which, by the way, gives you not only access to join the Kakuffle, but also access to our Facebook group and the patron cast and all the stuff we talk about every episode, we might actually be tweaking our perks for next year. So stay tuned to that. But it's going to be any $5 or higher patron gets access to join the Kakuffle, the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. If you are serious about fantasy hockey, you need to be in this league. Let me explain to you how it works, because obviously we have more than 14 patrons, so we have many divisions. It used to be a ladder, so basically after the first season, we ordered everyone into tiers of 14 players, basically, where, you know, the top 14 were in tier 1, and they played against each other in season 2, and the next 14 were in tier 2. This year, we've decided to change it up. We're doing a pyramid. So basically, there's going to be one division for Tier 1, then there's two divisions for Tier 2, three divisions for Tier 3. And basically, how it works is if you win your league, you're going to jump up two tiers. If you lose your league, you're going to fall down two tiers. So I'm saying if you come in last place. Also, second last place goes down one, and second place in your league goes up one. You don't have to worry about all the math. All you have to know is that you could join the Kakuffle this season And assuming there's going to be fewer than 15 divisions, and that would be a lot of people, right? 15 divisions of 14 people. I don't think we're going to fill that up. So you're probably going to be in the fifth tier if you join. If you win one of the tier five divisions next season, you're already in tier three. You win that. Two years from now, you're in tier one competing against Brian to become the ultimate Kakupful champion, just like Jeff who was the first ever Ultimate Kakupful champion when he won the Tier 1 division last year. So definitely this is a league that you're going to want to join. I promise it's going to be a lot of fun. You've got Brian and I as commissioners always thinking about how to make it perfect. And the main reason, though, is you're competing against all of your smartest competition. Prove to yourself that you are amazing at fantasy hockey by joining the Kakupful and climbing your way up. So if you're interested in playing in the Kakupful, all you have to do is sign up to be a patron of Keeping Carlson by going to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. We still have our promotion going, by the way, for the summer, where you can sign up for any amount, even a dollar, and that will get you access to our Facebook group where we talk fantasy hockey all the time, access to our patron cast, and you can sign up for the Kakupful. There's just going to be a thing that if you actually want to play in the Kakupful, you'll have to go back up to $5 by the deadline, which is around September 1st. We'll give you all the announcements and all the things in the Facebook group. But anyway, sign up is open, and we're really excited to fill it up with as many divisions as we can so that it could be the ultimate patron fantasy league, just like we call it. I'm really excited. Season three of the Couple, I think it's going to be our best season yet. Well, definitely with all the tinkering we've done and the tweaking and the discussions we've had, I mean, this has been 
a pretty thorough episode, and it's just a taste of what Elon and I have talked about in preparing the Cupful in every year. And so I think I, I think we improved last year over the year before. So this year is going to be another improvement that is both fun and competitive. Elon, have we told people how to sign up yet? Yeah, they just need to go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. And then once you're signed up as a patron, we will post in the Facebook group how to sign up for the Cacuffle. I can't tell people because I don't want everyone signing up. Only the patrons get to sign up. But if you want to see the rules of the Cacuffle, if you're actually interested in all of the dynamics of the pyramid and how it will work to climb and go down tiers, you could check out the rules at keepingcarlson.com slash Cacuffle. And that's K-K-U-P-F-L. Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. That might be hard for people to remember just by listening. But keepingcarlson.com slash Cacuffle will send you to the rules. It's going to be tough, Brian, for you to stay in Tier 1 because it's a 14-team division, but there's going to be seven teams coming in from Tier 2 and 3, so the bottom seven of Tier 1 aren't going to be able to stay, so you're going to have to be one of the best if you want to hang and stay in Tier 1 the next year. I'm pretty good at being one of the best. Yeah? What place did you come in last year? Sixth, so I guess I would have just hung in there, but I think I can do better. I know where I went wrong. Yeah, well, I definitely know that uh, one of our even. patrons, Dave... What? What did you think I was going to say? Oh, sorry. No, I thought you were going to talk about it. I thought you no, were going to give your excuses. Okay, go. I wasn't going to give an excuse. I was just going to say that I know that one of our patrons, Dave, the one who beat me in Tier 2 last year in order to climb his way... Well, he, he beat a lot of people, right? He didn't actually beat me in the playoffs, but I just considered him my opponent. I ended up coming in, whatever, fourth or something, so I'm staying in Tier 2. But Dave, who won our tier, he is very confident that he's going to take the Tier 1 championship. Plus, you've got to compete against Jeff, who won last year. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be interesting. It's going to be a lot of fun to follow along. Last year, Brian, we actually made an episode where we did an audio broadcast of the Tier 1 auction. Well, we should definitely consider doing that again for next year. That was a lot of fun to follow along with you and all of your picks. Yeah, it was very difficult, but it was also fun. I'm not going to blame it for the reason that I didn't draft as well as I would have liked. Yeah, okay. All right, so anyways, we'll end it here. We're going to keep telling you guys about the Cacupful for the rest of the summer series. We hope you've been liking the summer series, and we hope you liked this episode. We've still got a lot coming. Brian's actually going on vacation now for a month, but never fear. I'm still going to be around to put out some episodes. I've got some cool interviews coming up, and I have some other ideas. And then before you know it, we're going to be near the end of August for the Schmore Goaliesborg episode, where we're going to rank all of the goalies, put them into goalies, Tears, and then all of a sudden it's going to be time to look at the Yahoo draft rankings and discuss all the prospects. And the next thing you know, it's going to be time for the season to start. We're still going bi weekly until September, then weekly episodes of Keeping Carlson all the way through the 2017 18 season. So we really appreciate everyone who has stuck with us, and we promise a big year ahead. We're not slowing down. So, with that, let's cue the outro music. And Brian, why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? All right. Uh, this episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons who all get an exclusive invitation to join the Cacupful. Again, you can find out more at keepingcarlson.com slash patron. This episode was researched with help from, well, ourselves. And actually, I'll shout out our patrons over the last season. I kept a long list of all the issues and topics that came up related to the Cacupful and making it better. And that is the basis for what we talked about this episode and Off-Air as well and making all our choices for next year. So uh, thank you very much to all the patrons for their active involvement and input. Okay, people are going to think we've shilled so much for patrons this episode, but I don't know. 
Whatever. Whatever, dude. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Great job as always, Brian. Looking forward to catching back up with you when you're back from your vacation. Until then, keep on keeping Carl's son.